Welcome to Positively Pro-Life, a podcast brought to you by the Pennsylvania Pro-Life Federation. Positively Pro-Life brings you inspirational stories, important legislative updates, and informative interviews as we restore and strengthen a culture of life. I'm Maria Gallagher, Legislative Director for the Pennsylvania Pro-Life Federation. And joining me today is our Education Director, Remmel Tenney. Welcome, Remmel. Thank you so much. It's so good to be here. I'm really excited today to start chatting away with our guests. Yes, this is going to be a great show. You know, Remmel, we are grateful to those who are working to renew a culture of life in our communities, our commonwealth, and our country. Today, we will speak with a leader of that effort, which is changing hearts and minds in a profound way. But first, Remmel will provide some inspiration. Remmel. What I would like to share with you all today is personal to the Federation. A couple of weeks ago, we sent out the latest mailing in which we included a form for anyone who would like to volunteer their time and skills or get involved with the Federation's work. And it warms my heart to share with you that the overwhelming response we have received with more than 25 members from across the state who have already signed up. And maybe to some of you, that doesn't sound like a lot of people, but for an organization with less than 10 members and stuff, I think this will go a long way. So um, since the Dobbs decision, we're seeing more people wondering what they can do to help with the pro-life cause. One day we actually had a recently retired gentleman knock on our door, ask if we had any volunteering opportunities for him. So isn't that great that so many people are suddenly looking for more and more opportunities to serve? Um, the overturning of Roe has definitely set in motion a call to action because it is a testament to the fact that even if it takes time and even if we have the odds against us, that with consistent effort, we can win this fight. So I just want to take this time to thank you all for your generosity of heart and for recognizing the need for more pro-life advocates who can make a difference in small and big ways. You will definitely be hearing from us. And for our listeners, if any of you are feeling called to volunteer with the Federation, you can go on our website, www.paprolife.org. That's www.paprolife.org. Head over to the contact section and send us that email. Thank you so much, Ramo, for that inspiration. And now to our legislative update. In a desperate attempt to roll back the clock for pregnant mothers and babies in Pennsylvania, pro-abortion Democrats in the PA House of Representatives are now pushing a radical constitutional amendment. The amendment, known by the bizarre terminology Reproductive Rights Amendment, is designed to discourage reproduction as much as possible. The amendment would create abortion without limits in the Keystone State. It would wipe out common sense protections such as the time-tested law, which protects a baby from abortion after 24 weeks gestation. Keep in mind that this proposal comes at a time when premature babies are being saved at ever earlier stages of development. The amendment would also frustrate efforts to ensure that women are fully informed about abortion and its tragic repercussions. Informed consent for abortions would be gone. So would the 24-hour reflection period which allows women to talk with their family, friends, and clergy before an abortion takes place. Under the proposed amendment, 
Pennsylvania could also lose parental consent for abortions for teenage girls. At a time when parents' rights are a top issue, this proposed change in the law seems particularly archaic. Insulting, too, is the fact that the amendment would eliminate the ban on sex selection abortions. For this to be pushed during Women's History Month seems especially galling. We have worked too long and too hard to go back when it comes to securing the civil rights of preborn children. 4D ultrasounds prove the humanity of these precious babies. Legislators should not be beholden to the abortion industry, which claims the lives of more than 33,000 Pennsylvania children in a given year. Women deserve better than abortion, and they certainly deserve better than this amendment. Action item. If you live in PA, please send an immediate message to your state lawmaker, letting him or her know you oppose the so-called Reproductive Rights Amendment. And now to our guest. Greg Schleppenbach is Executive Director of the Culture Project, which is working to rebuild our culture one conversation and one heart at a time. Welcome, Greg. Thank you, Maria. It's wonderful to be with you all. Greg, how did you come to be pro-life? Well, I can attribute that to my mother. So my, uh, I'm the youngest of 11 children. And uh, in 1973, after Roe was handed down, my mom started one of the first county right to life chapters in Nebraska. So I grew up uh, with uh, right to life meetings in our home and just introduced to the issue by my mother's activism. And so when I got uh, went to the University of Nebraska uh, for college, I got involved in the Students for Life group there, eventually was president of that group. And then I got involved with uh, the, the local pro-life uh, group after college. And uh, a few years out of college, I was um, uh, at a Right to Life meeting when one of the uh, leaders of that group, who is also a board member for the Nebraska Catholic Conference, pulled me aside and said that the bishops were contemplating or were, were actually creating a new full-time position directing um, pro-life activities for all three dioceses in Nebraska and thought I should apply, and I did, and uh, was hired in uh, 1991, and I did that job for 23 years, um, and then the last couple of years at the Nebraska Catholic Conference, I was the executive director, so I attribute it to my mom, and I'll, I'll tell you a uh, a story that every pro-lifer will be thrilled to hear about my mom. So she she just passed away last June at the age of 100. She oh. lived a beautiful, long, healthy life to the very end. And um, but you know, as in the in the last year and a half or so, when the Supreme Court was starting to change, when Kennedy retired, and then when when Amy Coney Barrett got on the on the court as well, and it was looking like. Um, you know, we had a court that if the right case came along might overturn Roe, I started talking to mom, you know, about it, like keeping her up to date and telling her, you know, hey, I, I think you're going to live to see Roe overturned. And, uh, and then when they took the Dobbs case um, and had oral arguments in, in December, um, and it, it was looking more likely that they were actually going to revisit Roe. I told mom again, I updated her and said, you know, mom, I think you're going to live to see Roe overturned. And she was healthy. I, you know, who, but she was 99 at that point, you know, and you never know. And so we had celebrated her 100th birthday on January 20th of, of 2022. 
And um, then when the Dobbs decision was, or there was the, the initial thing was leaked, the draft opinion was leaked. Um, I told her again, mom, I think you're going to live to see Roe overturned. And so the, the, she, like two weeks, um, about the middle of June, she fell and broke her hip. Oh. And that, you know, was just kind of the beginning of the end for her. Well, she died the day after Dobbs was handed down. So, oh, my goodness. So she lived to see, she was not totally cognizant um, on the day Dobbs went down, but I told her about it. I know without a doubt, she knew that Dobbs was, uh, Roe was overturned and uh, she died the next morning on uh, the Immaculate Heart of Mary. So it, for those of you who are Catholic, know that the decision came down on the, on the Feast of the Sacred Heart of Jesus. And the next day was the Feast of the Immaculate Heart of Mary. And so she died having lived to see Roe overturned and in between the Feast of the Sacred Heart and Immaculate Heart of Mary. And for a, for a Catholic mom of 11 who worked her whole life for the pro-life cause, you just couldn't script uh, an end of life any better than that. Yeah, that's amazing. I am just so uh, blessed to hear that. And uh, it's true, like she left a legacy behind. Um, and it was, and I think that's such, so telling that she had that day um, to to actually know that her work counted for something and that dots is overturned. So, wow, that's just an amazing story. Thanks for sharing that with us. You're you're welcome. It was it was quite amazing and surreal to be at her at her deathbed on the day that uh, Roe was overturned. So it was a, it was a, a beautiful moment, a beautiful life, and a beautiful death. I'm sure she rejo she's rejoicing over it even now. Yes. <laughs> um, before you took on um, the Culture Project, you were the Associate Director for USCCB Secretariat of Pro-Life Activities. So could you tell us a little bit about the work that you did there? Yeah, so I, I already told you my, my pro-life work history up until um, about six and a half years ago when I left the, the Nebraska Catholic Conference and, and moved out here to be the Associate Director of uh, the uh, Pro-Life Secretariat. So I did um, uh, federal pro-life policy work there. Um, so was uh, led the, um, the, you know, the policy efforts on abortion, end of life issues, biomedical research issues for the bishops. So I worked with a great team there in the, in the pro-life secretariat office, as well as in our government relations office to advocate the, and, and advocate for the, 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 the church's positions on life, uh, beginning and end of life. And, um, you know, worked with a lot of other organizations, uh, national pro-life organizations, um, in, in coalition with one another to advance the pro-life agenda in Congress. So it was a was a you know an amazing experience going from you know working in a in a smallish state to working at the federal level on on, on pro-life policy. Very very challenging an environment as it would be a no, no surprise to certainly you all um, yeah. at the in your organization, but um, in any pro-life organization that has any interaction with federal policy, you know what a challenging environment we have with Congress, um, but just also how difficult and challenging federal policy is. So it was uh, it was a challenge. It was hard work. Um, after six and a half years, I was um, I was ready to uh, to to move on to doing uh, a different working in a different area of the pro-life vineyard um, at the Culture Project. So what is the vision of the Culture Project and how do you go about achieving it? 
Yeah, well, quite literally, our, our vision is a world where the dignity of the human person is at the forefront of every relationship, law, and societal structure. We dream of a place where passion for fidelity binds husbands to wives, fathers to mothers, and parents to children. We dream of a culture that fosters total human flourishing in the content context of strong um, relationships and strong families. And we dream of a world where the beauty of our sexuality is upheld and love is not cheapened by deceptive counterfeits. So that's literally our vision. That's the world we want to see. And our mission for accomplishing or reaching that vision is that we really are an initiative of young people uh, who we send out into dioceses to help restore culture through the experience of virtue. Um, we proclaim messages of human dignity, of the richness of living sexual integrity, and inviting our culture to become fully alive. Um, and so our missionaries are, um, are really well-formed. They're, they're, they're right out of college, so they're still within a reasonable age range of, of those in, in uh, middle schools and high schools. So we, our primary target audience are 6th through 12th grade students. And so we send these well-formed missionaries who are, um, you know, committed to living lives of virtue into dioceses to interact with, with Catholic students and to proclaim these messages of truth and beauty about the human person and human sexuality, but to demonstrate as well what, it's, what it looks like to live lives of virtue. So our, our uh, hope is not only to just you know, have a one-off presentation, but we really, our, our whole approach is multiple interactions with students and, and presentations and, and work to actually disciple them to, to work in one-on-one -on -one relationships, small group relationships, so that our missionaries can really interact with the students and, and demonstrate to them uh, what a life of virtue looks like and how, what a beautiful life that is. So when you do this, um, we know that the media doesn't hide anything from the kids these days. Um, and when you send your missionaries into the classrooms, what is the response of young people, especially with this countercultural statement that you make about sex and abortion? Yeah, well, it's, as you can probably imagine, our, our missionaries get mixed reactions from the students, you know, from you know, a relief and gratitude to hostility. Um, so mm -hmm. we get, and this is in Catholic schools, um, we get the whole range mm -hmm. of reactions. So I, I would say that the vast majority of the responses, and this is based upon, you know, surveys that we do of the students after presentations is very positive. I think they are, they are attracted to the beauty of the message, that they are attracted to the beauty of virtue. They see the the, the counterfeit um, of, of life, the vision of life of our, our culture of death. Um, and, I, and I think they, they see that they want to live lives of virtue. But, but there's, there are some, again, who just are, they, they are so conditioned by our culture that, um, that the message is, you know, is just dismissed in some cases. Thankfully, not, not many, but you know, there's that principle of misery loves company. And, you know, this is this is one of the things about the culture is that um, so much of our culture not only doesn't understand an authentic vision of the human person and human sexuality, but actually resents anybody who would present it. And I think when you look at people who are um, who have lived and bought into a, a secular um, lifestyle, a view of the human person or of human sexuality, 
Um, sometimes people who are proclaiming a different vision, a vision of, of virtue, um, can be seen as, you know, in, in a negative light because it, it, it so, so those who struggle to embrace um, that beautiful vision, you know, see see others in in a very negative way, and 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 so they resent and resist that that image of beauty that that they struggle so hard to 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 reach. Um, so we get a gambit of um, uh, of responses, but the majority clearly are are grateful that we're there and express it quite uh, directly to our missionaries. Um, and it's not only the students, but uh, the similar reaction to parents. So we, we give um, talks to the parents. We, you know, prior to speaking to the students, so the parents know what, what, we, what we share with their students so that the parents can see firsthand and hear firsthand what their children are facing in this culture. Um, and, you know, there too, while we get many parents who are very grateful that we're, we're coming in and helping to, to um, address these issues with their, with, their, with their children, some are also very resistant. Um, and again, perhaps those that have bought into the culture and, and just are, are hesitant to have their children exposed to something um, that might challenge their own view of, of life and uh, lifestyle. Tell us about the training you give your missionaries. Yeah, we have um, pretty extensive training of our missionaries. So we we have two times in the year when they were, they're all gathered together for training. In June, um, we gather them at a, a monastery in Pennsylvania where they um, enter into the, the uh, spirituality of the Benedictine monks. Um, they're there for two weeks. They, they join in the, the prayer lives of the monks. They learn how to pray. They learn how to, you know, to really engage in a holy hour because what, one of the uh, expectations that we have and one of the commitments that our missionaries agree to as being missionaries is that they will, um, part, they will uh, engage in a, a daily holy hour before the Blessed Sacrament, um, and they also will uh, go attend daily Mass. So we, we recognize that when you're engaging the culture, of death, um, you, you're going to be under spiritual attack. And so our missionaries have to be well prepared, well armored for those attacks. And they do that through the, this being steeped in daily prayer. Um, again, an hour before the Blessed Sacrament um, and, and daily Mass. So they, they learn that rhythm of prayer and, and spiritual life um, in that in those first two weeks. Uh, they also learn about our organization and how it works. They learn how to go out and, and raise um, funds to help uh, support their uh, living expenses. And, and then after that, those two weeks, they go home uh, for a couple of months and do, their, do the fundraising. And then we gather them back in September for six weeks, where we bring in experts on um, topics related to pro-life apologetics, the theology of the body or human sexuality, um, and, and a variety of how to live in community, because uh, our missionaries also, when they go into dioceses to speak, they live in community, and they so they um, spend time with each other, developing that community, because they, they give talks together, they have to kind of know each other, and, um, and so living in community can be challenging, and so we have to, you know, help them to understand what it means to live in community. Um, but they they spend six weeks of intensive training. They learn the talks that they are to give on human dignity, sexual integrity, and social media. So they they learn those talks. They 
add in their own personal aspects to those talks. And then they practice in, in schools, in Catholic schools on Long Island, where we gather them uh, for the six weeks in, um, in September. So intensive training. <laughs> yeah, I can imagine. Um, so my next question is, um, I come from a place, uh, I come from India, a place of multicultures and multi like we have a lot of different religions. And so I know the word missionary has a very negative connotation um, back in my home country, uh, especially because it is always associated with just the Christian missionaries. And so I was wondering, uh, when you go, when you have missionaries in the schools, um, do you ever get pushback from students or parents who are not Catholic or Christian for for the things that you do share um, with everybody? You know, I don't I don't know that there is. Um, I, I'm not sure that we know when we get feedback if it's negative feedback, whether it is coming from students who are not Catholic or Christian, or from parents who are not Catholic or Christian. I we we might get a little feedback if they if they offer that, that, you know, as people who are from different faiths or whatever, that they're coming at this from a different perspective. Um, if I had to guess, I would say that we, we probably don't get any more negative feedback from those who are not Catholic or Christian than we would from those who are Catholic or Christian. You know, it just, it, it um, the, many of the messages that, that we communicate, especially on human dignity and on social media are messages that, that aren't necessarily or particularly um, religious. They just go to basic human nature, to come yeah. to you know to um, natural law principles, um, you know kinds of things that you know even if you're not a religious person, everybody can to some degree understand the dignity of the human person that we are different than animals, that we have a particular purpose, that we are owed uh, uh, respect and love, um, you know. So so really the the approach that we take. Um, you know, while informed very much by Catholic theology, and it's particularly theology of the body, Pope John Paul's beautiful teaching on the, the nature of the human person, human sexuality, you know, we our, 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 our presentations, some of them, especially the human dignity and social media talks could be given in a public school, because, you know, they really just, mm -hmm. they focus on, on general principles that even people who are not religious um, could, res it would resonate with them as well. Could you share some statistics or some information on how the Culture Project has impacted the lives of people? Yeah, happy to do that. So this is very important for us as, as an organization to be able to have this kind of data to show that, that our mission is actually having some success, is changing the minds of students or um, encouraging and uh, stealing the minds of, of those who are already engaged in um, you know, living a life of virtue. We want to um, bulk them up. We want to encourage them. Um, and so we need that kind of feedback to know how our presentations are working. Are they transforming? Uh, are they helping build up those who are already living virtuous lives? Um, so we, we uh, after um, presentations, we, we ask the teacher to send to all the students a, an online survey. And we ask them a variety of questions related to the topics that we speak to, to see you know, to what degree they agree with what was said and what was shared with them um, and to what degree it's changed their mind about some of these subjects. And so we get we get good feedback. It's, it's an area where we're always trying to improve and find ways to get, you know, more students to respond. It's voluntary. You know, they're filling out these surveys, of course, is voluntary. So 
we're not hearing from all of the students, but we get a pretty representative sample uh, of the students um, and, and how they uh, you know, responded to uh, the presentation. So um, I would say these are general uh, numbers, percentages of some of the questions that we ask. 95% uh, of the students, 95% of the students uh, responded that they believe in the value of human life. 83% um, said they want to advocate for the vulnerable, those who are dehumanized. 89% uh, 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 after viewing our sexual integrity talk said, I believe sexting is wrong. 90% um, of the students said, I want to stop sexting or continue avoiding it. 85% uh, of the students who, again, uh, uh, witnessed our sexual, integri se sexual integrity or social media presentation said, I believe porn is harmful, again, 85%. And 90% said, I want to stop watching porn or continue avoiding it. So it's, it's a snapshot. It's an indication. Um, you know, our hope is that we can, you know, get more longitudinal and qual qualitative um, you know, research studies, you know, feedback from students. So uh, we can maybe follow them beyond their uh, high school years and, and even beyond their college years to see to what degree this um, intercession that we have, this, you know, lifting up and inspiring them um, to live lives of virtue and empowering them to do so actually has sustaining effect in their lives. And so our, our hope is to continue to improve and expand upon, you know, our data collection so that we can really demonstrate that, that this, again, our work, our mission is having the desired effect and, and moving us in that direction of our vision. So we have just about two and a half minutes left. Remel, do you have another question? Yes, I guess you could just share uh, what are some of the insights that you gained from working on both sides of the abortion equation? You were um, on the legal side and now you're with the students. Um, so what would you say yeah. about it? Yeah, well, I'll, I'll put it a little differently. I, I've moved from fighting the, the supply side of abortion to now working to address the demand side. And having worked more than 30 years in fighting the supply side of abortion, um, you know, which was, you know, in, in all facets, it was from, you know, certainly the legal legislative um, uh, approach and, and, and work that I did in Nebraska, as well as on the federal level, but also pastoral, educational uh, and prayer uh, related efforts that we did it through the through the church in Nebraska and nationally, um, you know, moving moving from that, which is critically important work um, to moving to what I see as sort of upstream culturally doing this work on the demand side is just so critically important. Um, you know, we've got to be engaged at every level, but, you know, as, as Pope John Paul talked about in, in his, his encyclical Gospel of Life, um, you know, we have to address the manifestations of the culture of death, which is, you know, all of these attacks against human life, but we've got to get underground to the root of the problem if we're really going to change the trajectory of our culture and make abortion unthinkable. And we're seeing that now with, after Roe was overturned, the fight continues and is now on, you know, in almost every state. Um, and we're seeing people who we thought were pro-life not being so pro-life. And so we see that, you know, our, the, the, the work on the supply side always has to go forward, but we've got to get to the root of the problem and getting to young people earlier in their lives, helping to inform them, form them and empower them to live lives of virtue is absolutely critical if we're going to change the trajectory of our culture. Thank you so much, Greg from The Culture Project, for being with us today. It's my pleasure. Great to be with you guys. Thanks for your wonderful work, too.
And remember, there's always a reason to choose life. Thank you for joining us, and we hope you have a great week ahead.